about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, Let me pray again. Uh, Lord, those words of David from the psalm and these words we've just read are are deep and powerful and uh, we pray that you would do something with them in our lives this evening by the power of your spirit. Amen. Uh, Well, we're approaching Easter, aren't we? Uh, For some of us, this is old news. I started approaching Easter this year on Boxing Day when my brother-in-law came back from the shops with hot cross buns. Anybody else in that position? It's a bit distasteful, that move, isn't it? But there you go. Um, But most of us will now, two weeks out, have Easter on our radar, at least as a holiday. But big deal. I mean, it comes around with amazing regularity. Easter, doesn't it? You know, do we really need to notice? Should we be preparing for Easter in any way other than making plans for a nice long weekend? Well, maybe we should. I remember my, as a kid, I remember my dad telling me uh, that Good Friday was really more important than Christmas. As a kid, this is just incomprehensible. I mean, You're kidding, right? But it really made an impression on me as a child. And we are going to prepare for Easter a little this year at at church at NEAC. And we're going to do it by taking some time this Sunday and next Sunday to think a little more slowly and a little more deeply about the death of Jesus and what it means. We're going to look at two amazing passages that speak about the death of Christ in different ways in order to approach Good Friday with clear eyes. What we want to try to do these weeks is to try to get to grips with a question that is deep and holy. How actually does the death of Jesus work? Because that's why Christians have always celebrated Good Friday. Because we believe that the death of Jesus, it it mattered. It achieved something, right? It wasn't just 
a tragic injustice that ought to be remembered like other tragic injustices. It wasn't just an example of humility and dignity in the face of evil. It was that, but it wasn't just that. No, it, it did something. The death of Christ is the source, Christians have always said, of salvation, whatever that means. How? How did the violent, embarrassing death of a Jewish teacher 2,000-odd years ago, how did that achieve something that makes a difference, that, that even makes all the difference in the world, to people like us today? I hope this is a question that is interesting for you. Perhaps even if you're not a Christian, you're just here checking it out and you want to understand what Christians believe and, and, and why this is such a big deal. I hope this is interesting to you. I also hope it will be interesting and helpful for those of us who are pretty familiar with this story. I hope it will fill us with a, a, a kind of allow us to see it afresh and fill us with new thankfulness. Okay, that's the plan. Let's turn to this first passage, Romans chapter 3. It's printed on your outlines there. Uh, if you want a copy, I'll put the verses up on the screen as well as we go. This is one of the most profound discussions of the death of Jesus in the Bible. One Christian scholar called this possibly the single most important paragraph ever written. Now, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but it is kind of a big one. So let's have a look at it see what we can learn about Christ's death here. I want to begin by noticing something surprising. In this passage, what we hear is that God's righteousness is good news. God's righteousness is good news. This passage comes at a turning point in a long argument that runs from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, right through to the whole of chapter 3. It's a long, nuanced, brilliant argument that's well worth reading in full at some point, but it, it's also got a basic simplicity to it. It's an, it's, an it's an essentially simple argument. It begins with a terrifying announcement in chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then the argument basically goes on to show that this includes this category of the wickedness of people. That actually includes everyone. And so it ends with this equally terrible statement in chapter 3, therefore no one, not even the most religious, the most educated, the people who have the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The whole argument actually adds up to the simple, devastating claim we see in our passage in verse 23, right in the middle there. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The whole argument is this long explanation of why that statement is true. But then we hear the first words of our passage in verse 21. But now, but now. 
something has happened. There is something else to be said. Something that cracks open this all-encompassing judgment and gives hope. Something, something comes in, but now. And what is that something? Well, here's the surprise. The answer, it turns out, is God's righteousness. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Now, the reason I think we should find this surprising is that it would be pretty easy to think that actually God's righteousness is kind of the problem. Because God's righteousness means his justice, right? It means his righteous and good and holy character that means he will never let sin go unpunished. He, he can never just ignore evil and pretend it's not there. No, he's righteous, and so he has to deal with it. That's what God's righteousness means, isn't it? And do you know, this is an even more obvious thought in the original language. I don't want to bamboozle you here by talking about uh, the Greek original that underlies this passage, but I, I think it's interesting and valuable. You see, in the Greek original, and actually it's the same in many languages, Spanish is the same, Indonesian, others I think, um, there is only one word where English has two words. English has righteousness and justice, but in Greek there is just one word, dikeosini. So Greek has this one word, dikeosini, and that's the words used in our passage, and it translates in two ways, righteousness and justice. Anybody know another language where this is true? I know it's true in Spanish and Indonesian. Anybody add one? So I shouldn't put you on the spot. Anyway, I think it is true in other languages. Um, now, this is worth knowing this for understanding our passage because in our passage we see talk of both righteousness and also forms of the word justice. Did you notice as it goes through, justified, just? What we need to know is that they're the same kind of word in Greek. This whole passage, actually, is in one sense all about justice and how the justice of God has come on the scene. But now, apart from the law, the justice of God has appeared. But how can that be good news, right? How on earth is God's justice, his righteousness, good news? Well, that, says Paul, that's the key to understanding the death of Jesus. See, God's righteousness turns out to be much more interesting, much more creative, much better for us than we could ever have expected. Look how Paul goes on. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace." Somehow, Paul says, God's righteousness, his justice, has come on the scene in such a way that it is a gift. It gives a gift to us. Those who have sinned and fall short of God's glory can now be put in the right. They can be justified. God's righteousness is good news because it brings this new possibility of being justified. Now, I want to slow down here to think about this a little bit more by asking two questions. What does it mean to be justified? And why is that something we really need? 
Okay, so first, what does it mean to be justified? Well, most basically, to be justified means to be declared to be in the right. We can think of it in terms of like a court, where a judge can either condemn somebody or they can acquit them. To be justified is to be declared not in the wrong and condemned, but to be in the right, vindicated. But what does that mean in this context? Well, the Bible makes it clear that actually all people in the end will be judged. Here's how the book of Hebrews puts it. It says, It is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that, the judgment. Our lives are not simply our own to do with however we feel. They are a gift. They're a privilege, a task given to us by our maker who will also hold us to account for them. Do you know, even if they don't believe in God, even if you don't believe in God, a lot of people have an instinctive sense of this, that our lives are a kind of responsibility, that it matters what we do with them. We have a kind of debt to discharge them well and we ought not waste them. And that's how the Bible thinks too. It says that in the end we will have to give an account for how we have lived. And to be justified means to be judged to be in the right at that reckoning. It means to be vindicated, acquitted, approved, Can I invite you to pause for a moment just to feel what a thing that would be? To know that you are finally and ultimately okay. That you are safe, that you are in the right. To know that God, the true judge who sees and knows all, like everything. And who is the one whose opinion in the end is the only opinion that matters, to know that he accepts you and affirms you and says, you've done well. What a thing that would be. But the problem is, who among us can really expect that? I mean, sometimes we kind of don't look at that too closely and we tell ourselves that we can. We tell ourselves that we've, we've basically lived good lives. I've done a lot of good things. I've tried my best. Even though this isn't really a good thing to do, sometimes what we do is we compare ourselves to others. Well, I'm, I'm definitely better than them. And, you know, when you say it outright, it seems awful, but actually we do it. We do it kind of on the sly, quite a lot. But is that really convincing any of that? Are we really confident that we have discharged our responsibility, our debt to life well? Are you really confident of that? Like, like really and truly well? Or are we haunted by deep uncertainties, memories of mistakes made? sometimes bad mistakes, of people hurt, of chances missed. 
The Bible tells us that the truth is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a reference to the purpose for which we were made, the high calling we have as human beings. Human beings, the Bible says, were made in the image of God. We are made to reflect God's glory in the world through lives of holiness and goodness and power and justice. And we were made to worship God and to have friendship and intimacy with him. That's the glory that we were made for, but instead, one and all, we have fallen short. We have traded that calling in for things that are less. We have let our love rest upon small things. We have turned inward on ourselves and our own ideas. We have indulged our desires. We have given up our freedom. And we have failed to give God the honor that he deserves. We have fallen short of the glory of God that we were made to reflect and designed to seek. And so we cannot hope to be justified. That's, a, that's the problem. Left to ourselves, what we can expect is not to be justified, but to be condemned. We can expect the judge to say, not yes, but no. We can expect not approval and acceptance, but the judgment upon our failure that the Bible calls the wrath of God. And that is a terrible prospect. But, says Paul, but, says this passage, the righteousness of God has appeared, bringing a hope, an impossible hope, that we may, after all, as a gift, be justified. That is not by managing it ourselves, not by finally, out of nowhere, pulling off, making an absolute perfect success of our lives. No, just as a gift. That is the incredible good news the righteousness of God brings. But how? That question is still not answered, right? He's just stated it. But how can this be? How can the righteousness of God mean this priceless gift of putting us in the right after all? Now we finally get to the death of Jesus Look what the apostle says next. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace. How? Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The answer we are searching for is here. It is that when the righteousness of God appeared, when it came on the scene, it came as an act of redemption through Jesus Christ, an act that buys something back, wins something back, redemption. And that act of redemption was the giving up to death of Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. What is that? What is a sacrifice of atonement? Well, here we need to get into a little bit of detail, which will seem a bit difficult at first, but it can 
really enrich our understanding. So just stay with it, even if it takes a little while, okay? The Apostle Paul, when he says sacrifice of atonement here, he's using quite technical language. The phrase sacrifice of atonement translates only one word in Greek. The word is hilasterion. And hilasterion is a word with two main meanings. It has a non-technical meaning. In the non-technical sense, it means something like a way of appeasing someone or a means of dealing with a grievance. Um, And that makes sense here. Christ's death, Paul says, is something that deals with the grievance between us and God, that deals with the problem in the relationship. But how? How? That's where it's helpful to know that it also has a technical meaning. It has a technical meaning that relates to the sacrifice system of ancient Israel. Um, You may not be familiar with this, that's totally fine. Let Let me kind of explain. Israel, which you can read about this in the Old Testament, had this whole system of sacrifices, which the aim of them was that they enabled ancient Israel to live with God who was holy. And there were lots of different sacrifices, but basically they involved killing animals and presenting their blood before God in the tabernacle, which is the big tent or the temple, as a way of dealing with the problem of sin and guilt. So that's what's going on in the sacrifice system. And at the heart of this system of sacrifices was a special ritual performed once a year called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, one man, the high priest, entered into the central inner sanctuary of the tabernacle in order to offer sacrifice in a very special way. So one man, once a year. Because in that inner sanctuary, you see, right in the middle, where nobody was allowed to go normally, there was a particular point, a particular space where the presence of God was focused. And that point was the space above, here here things get a bit weird, it was the space above a thing called the Ark of the Covenant, which was a kind of box in which the Ten Commandments were placed. And on top of the Ark was a thing called, in Hebrew, the Kaporet. The Kaporet. Um, which is mostly translated the atonement cover or the mercy seat, but it it basically means the lid bit, right? The bit on top. Um, And it probably looked something like this. That's the ark, and you can see there's that top bit with the two statues of angels are called cherubim. And that space between the wings above the caporet was where God said, that was where God said he would be specially present. Have a listen to these words from Exodus. The book of Exodus, God says, there above the cover, the caporet, between the two cherubim, you can picture where it is, that are over the ark of the covenant law, there I will meet with you and give you all my commands to the Israelites, for the Israelites. So the presence of God is focused at this very precise point. And on the special day of atonement, what the high priest had to do was to sprinkle the blood of slaughtered animals on that place, 
on the face of the caporet, the atonement cover. It was the one moment at which sacrifice came right into the heart of the presence of God. Right to the one focused point where God said he would meet with his people. Now, why is all that worth the effort of understanding? It's because, Paul says, that is what Christ's death is doing. Hilasterion, the word in our passage translated sacrifice of atonement, its technical meaning is to translate this word caporet. Right? It's the word that's used for that, for the mercy seat. And so what Paul is saying in our passage is that in the death of Jesus, God was doing something almost exactly like he did in ancient Israel in the tabernacle. He was, he's saying Christ's death became the point. It, it was the point at which a sacrifice of blood, the perfect sacrifice, was taken into the very presence of the holy God. See, Christ's death is the thing to which all the sacrifices of Israel pointed. It was the ultimate offering, the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect redemption. Christ in his death became the point at which the perfect sacrifice came into the very presence of God to deal with our sin so that the wrath of God was turned aside. The grievance and offense of our failure finally and completely removed. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, as a, as a point, a real point where sin could actually be dealt with at the heart of God so that there was no problem left. And, and the crucial thing Paul wants to stress here is that this was a work of God's righteousness. Right? God did not cease to be holy. God didn't, this was not a way of God just kind of pretending our sin wasn't there, looking the other way. No, in the death of Jesus... God looked squarely at our sin and dealt with it without giving up his justice. In, in fact, exactly by being righteous. That's why Paul concludes the passage the way he does. Look at it in verses 25 and 26. God did this, says Paul, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Do you see the majesty and honor and wonder of this? God did not just forget about sin. He found an incredible way, an incredible way to be both just and the one who justifies. It should have been one or the other. It should have been just and so sinners condemned. Or it should have been, you know, sinners okay, but 
God's given up his justice, but he's found a way to do both through the death of Christ. And that means that our sin, all of it, in fact all sins, are truly dealt with. There's nothing awaiting payment. Nothing in your life is too big for this offering. God has paid the debt himself in Christ. It was a work of perfect redemption, of justice done and accounts settled forever. And friends, it is God's gift to you if you will have it. If you will have it. There is no distinction. Paul says in verse 22, everybody's in the same position. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so all are justified freely as a sheer gift by his grace. And the way we receive this gift, the way anybody and everybody receives it, is simply through faith. The righteousness of God is for all who believe, Paul says. It is received through faith. God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What is faith? It is trust. It means seeing the truth of this and welcoming it for yourself. Accepting it, saying yes to it. And that is all that is needed for our justification. For us to be put in the right. Simply putting our faith, our trust in this extraordinary act of God for our salvation. Because the whole point is we cannot justify ourselves. That way is closed. But what we could not do, God has done. And he's done as a gift. And he has done all that is needed. So that all that is needed from us is the open hands to receive. Now, to be sure, receiving this gift, it changes a lot. It changes everything. Faith opens the door to a new life of love and service and sacrifice. It's the same with any significant gift. Afterwards, you become the person who's received it. It's the same with this gift. But all those things are things that follow on from receiving this gift rather than coming before it. What it takes to be justified is simply receiving the gift of this perfect redemption in Christ. And so, friends, let me invite you to have faith in Jesus Christ. Especially if you have not taken that step before. If perhaps you've held back. Perhaps you've been thinking it through. Let me invite you now, tonight, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement, the means by which you can be justified. Do you have anything better to rely on at the judgment? See his blood shed for you taken into the presence of the holy God. It is enough. It is much, much more than enough for you and whatever you have done. To put you in the right, perfectly and forever. Put your trust in it. Maybe as we share the Lord's Supper in a moment, put your trust in it. And if none of this is new for you, 
Even the stuff about the Hebrew and Greek words, maybe you know all that before. Praise God. Fantastic. Let this be a reminder of what an extraordinary gift you have been given, at what stupendous cost. A reminder of what a perfect and complete offering has been made and of the certainty of redemption. As you come to the Lord's Supper this evening and as you approach Good Friday, be reminded of what it means that God put Christ forward as a sacrifice of atonement to make redemption and to justify us, we who did not deserve it, as a sheer free gift. Let it call forth from you, piercingly clear, thanks and praise. Amen. I'm going to pray. Almighty God, we praise you and give you thanks for your righteousness. Your righteousness, which does not kill but gives life. Your righteousness by which you are both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. We praise you for offering Christ as a sacrifice of atonement and making redemption for us. What an extraordinary gift, Lord. We give you ourselves in response. We entrust ourselves to this amazing grace in confidence in you. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.